Hi there, Larry Kuderai here in this third episode of the Green Ancestors a podcast series and a podcast series that is looking at the way in which our ancestors engaged in small actions and big actions in climate preservation and climate action. In episode one, Dr. Ignatius Mabasa talked about to me about uh, taboo and totems critical to climate preservation and action. In episode two, Tanashi Muchuri on the same issue, how religion played its role to make sure that people are conformed. Now, episode three is I'm going to have a chat with you uh, on how colonization had an effect on uh, this falling apart to, to a large extent, touching on the dis- distorted balance between how economies were vo- viewed. Uh, this is pre-colonial times and going into colonial times. Uh, I have resource from uh, papers by the likes of Vimbaisi, Kwashirai, as well as the National Archives and, uh, and a lot more. So here we go. took place as well as then moving into what uh, little actions uh, took place and how they failed and why they failed during the colonial period. Now, Webandora in the the preservation of Great Zimbabwe, your monument said, uh, preservation went further than physical remains and the development and mental issues around it. Now, heritage management, he said, takes into account the landscape in which uh, cultural property, tangible and intangible, exists and involves a commitment to uphold every value ascribed to heritage by all parties involved. And it was also Grandberg who then separated it into into, uh, different things, memories, culture, and cultural heritage. Memories being your personal uh, experience and culture being what you you experience with people around you and cultural heritage, of course, being what you then inherit from, from going forward. Now, in Zimbabwe, conservation by this state has tended to be to favor and privilege Western scientific models at the expense of the indigenous com, uh, conservation practices of local people as informed by the indigenous epistemologies. Uh, I'm good. Another person I want to quote from is Munyarad Zimawere, who is an associate pro, uh, professor of social anthropology at the Universidad Pedagogica in Mozambique. And previously, Mawere was a lecturer in philosophy at the University of Zimbabwe. Uh, going back, before I go delve back into the past, I want to also create, create a grounding for some of the situations that Zimbabwe finds itself in. Several United Nations texts, uh, the 2005 World Summit Outcome document in, two, uh, in particular, uh, refer to economic, social, and environmental pr- protection as the interdependent and mutually reinforcing pillars of sustainable development. Now, balancing development and the environmental issues uh, and protection, uh, to be specific, has always been a challenge, especially countries like Zimbabwe. Yet many see the challenges merely through the prism of uh, population growth. There have been arguments before who say, look, uh, it was easier to, to preserve the environment uh, before, uh, b- um, b- before colonization took place because fundamentally human beings in Africa were very far apart. And therefore, when they moved from one land to another, uh, they did very little land degradation. So that allowed a lot of the land or a lot of the earth to, to, to reinvigorate itself. Uh, this is even, uh, but but this uh, this also is kind of strange because you look at the population growth of Zimbabwe, 
uh, between 2002 and 2012, it was a mere 11%, and 2012 to 2022 is expected to see growth in Zimbabwe at 23%. That is according to uh, statistics from the Zimbabwe National Statistics Body. So we're not looking at huge jumps here, and notwithstanding migration and things of that nature, but we're looking at a, a, a specific system in which we're looking at this present at modern times. I'm going to get you to the, to the past so we can have a better understanding of where our society, how our society got to where we are, where these issues around climate action being based on indigenous knowledge systems have been affected. So what we have is a Western-based science, a Western science-based awareness of the causes and effects of land degradation through inappropriate use and management, and the subsequent need for appropriate monitoring techniques and conservation measures has been well established and legislated for in Zimbabwe since the 20th century resulting in the former management infrastructure for the research, implementation, and support of land use guidelines. Others, st others still argue that increasing colonial settlement and co uh, control resulted in an inequality of access to natural resources, an inequitable distribution of land to, uh, took people away from their tribal lands, where the land and themselves were one, where their ancestors looked over them, and where taboos could be applied. Now, going back to episodes one and two, if you notice a lot of the taboos and a lot of the uh, the storytelling, uh, I did the in, it was linked to where people were uh, physically, and also the religious aspects were linked to specific places where people were, where people worshipped, and therefore the reverence, uh, the way people had a. a, a, a viewed the, the land as sacred was affected when they were kicked off their land because a lot of the reminders that connected them to the land were based on familiarity and understanding of land. And then also, uh, I'm going to mention a couple of things of how that being moved away from their land also had further effects in as far as, uh, as, um, as climate actions were concerned. Um, Masaka said as much in 2011 and said the colonization of Zimbabwe and the rest of the African continent was pre predicated on a treacherous basis of trying to improve the lives of the people of Africa, when in fact it spelt doom to the Africans and the resource dispossession that in impoverished people that had managed to survive within their means prior to the advent of colonization. This is from uh, in 2011. And the Land Tenure Act of 1930 transferred land from the majority to a minority, resulting in an uh, over centralization. And in the context of such, any ideas or uh, any ideas around indigenization, uh, uh, indigenous rather, sorry, uh, conservation was said to be backward, a theme that remains common even to this day. Uh, with no appetite for combining science and tradition, a holistic attitude towards land was lost. Land became private property purely to be exploited and protected by paper, wh whether used, used appropriately or not. Uh, so again, now to everybody see question I in dilemmas in um, conservative dilemmas in conservationism in colonial Zimbabwe, 1890 to 1830, published in 2006. During the period between 1890 and 1830, European farmers and miners established commercial farms and mines in the Mazoa district of colonial Zimbabwe. The colonial cash economy was dependent on state support in expropriating natural resources, 
at the expense of indigenous people. Miners received a preferential treatment in timber and energy requirements from the government because they contributed to the bulk of state revenue. This policy was a source of protracted conflict between miners and farmers over forest exploitation. We'll go into that a little bit later. However, the state also sought to orient settler farmers towards the production of export crops, tobacco, maize and cotton, the two major pillars of the colonial economy, mining and agriculture directly caused a fundamental transformation in soil and forest use leading to deforestation and soil erosion. So the erosion was a major risk that was faced along with the logistic and financial difficulties of pioneer farming. It, however, highlighted the negative impact of settler farming, particularly the perennial cultivation of the same crop on the same field, notably tobacco and maize. Land was used for short-term economic gain, what was missing was a willingness on the part of the settler society to deal effectively with the problems of deforestation and erosion and the need for radical change in the individual and collective attitudes towards natural resources. So, in summary, what we're looking at there is even now, not necessarily just about land, a lot of things that are mentioned in culture are seen as backward when people still refer to themselves by their totems Although it's becoming popular again now, it is seen as something that is, oh, a hark to the past, especially when uh, we are looking from the, concept, from the perspective of what uh, became a Judeo-Christian-influenced society uh, that was encouraged or rather forcibly uh, moved away from its own uh, ident cultural identities. Uh, so when we now look at um, this, uh, this lack of understanding of the ecosystem resulted in certain creatures, particularly ants, uh, bugs and things of that nature, uh, insects, uh, to which to this day we still have a problem enumerating, being seen uh, as less part of the ecosystem and seen as less important than others. Uh, and and, and while in a, jumping forward a little bit again, in 1980, there seemed to be a gesture towards approaching conservation from an indigenous knowledge system approach, coupled with what, coupled with what complementary science, science there could be. Uh, soon, the national conservation strategy of 1980 and successive iterations have failed. And they based on the in, uh, inherited uh, an inherent attitude towards indigenous knowledge systems. There have been improvements at uh, Zimbabwe education, uh, environmental education policy that came a little bit later, which I will mention in passing a little bit later, has tried to address this in principle, but not necessarily in action. Uh, but all of this, if you look at the attitudes, uh, this flew in the face of, say, German philosopher Immanuel Kant's uh, categorical imperative approach uh, when it comes to ethics, which is a universal uh, ethical uh, principle stating that one should always respect the humanity in others and that one should only act in accordance with the rules that could ho hold for everyone. So how did the economic function work before the colonization? Beach's, uh, this is a 1974 work, shows that the indigenous Shona, in this aspect, I'm going to use them as an example, uh, speak, uh, speaking Kore Kore and the Zazuru dialects, built uh, permanent farming and gold mining settlements on fertile plateau lands uh, drained by the Mazoa River in northeastern Zimbabwe. According to Reed, in 1977, crop production comprised uh, a, a diverse range of grains and plants, 
maize, sorghum, millet, uh, rice, beans, groundnuts, melons, sweet canes, vegetables, cotton, tobacco, and dagger, which is uh, cannabis. Um, individuals holding political and economic power invariably exercise religious authority. In the loosely al uh, allied Shona chieftaincy system, rulers and priests formed uh, the Dare or council uh, of uh, entrusted to make and enforce various regulations regarding resource use and uh, conservation. According to Gumbo in 1993, the ownership, allocation and control of land, forests and water resources uh, all fell within the spiritual realm. Now, land, pastures, and forests are communally owned by all people, but were vested in the chief who held it in trust of the people. The Dare allocated land to individuals for homesteads and plots. Uh, peasant farm families uh, retained uh, some rights on allocated lands, uh, provided they did not display political disloyalty, migrate, commit illegal offense, or violate conservation rules. Uh, certain things such as hillside and valley cultivation was rare regardless of the availability of flat lands. Uh, under the Gombomakura or shifting cultivation system, wood and branches were burned and the ashes spread over the land. Old lands, Makura were uh, rested and left fallow for new uh, fields or Gombo. Uh, grass, bush, and trees grew on old lands, uh, allowing nature to revert back to something akin to damage or scar the face of the earth. Uh, now, um, th this is uh, this is this is important because la land was rested as a restitution uh, of of the wounds inflicted on the soil. This is according to Wilson, nineteen eighty nine, and Gumbo, nineteen ninety three. Similarly, more as much as also as, as more and Vaughan said in 1994, uh, the the member of Zambia uh, as well rested fields, allowing them to uh, regenerate. Clearly, under uh, sparse population conditions, shifting cultivation was useful in um, conserving the land and uh, and forests. Now, each European pioneer settler, when they came through, received 15 prospective mining claims. Or mineral deposits and the land and a land grant of 3,000 acres or 1,210 hectares. So, in all of this, this is land that they come in, they say, they're just assuming there's no one there, no one using anything. This is in spite of the fact that, as we can say, a lot of grain was being, uh, was being grown, it was being used, the land was being used, and uh, the the system of arresting the land was so that you could prevent things as a soil er erosion, land degradation, and things of that nature. So, in this instance, that's how the ancestors would engage in uh, sustainable development type farming. The first concern about the erosion was therefore was expressed in legislative terms under the colonial government uh, for us using uh, uh, and, and, and most of the ideas were borrowed from South Africa which uh, connected government officials to European and international discourses about trees, erosion and water supplies. So again in this instance the indigenous knowledge system is, is left out of the conversation. It is not involved in the conversation. Um, essentially you've got a bunch of dudes who come to, to Africa and they just start doing things as they wish. And Zimbabwe's colonial agricultural officials argue that settler clearance of bush and trees along river and stream banks increased the erosive powers of runoff water 
And however, soil erosion problems did not seem to concern most Mazowe miners, uh, farmers and sections of the central government who believed that it was neither serious nor widespread enough to warrant attention. Uh, so the negligence of government were in, was manifested in the serious shortage of manpower and resources in the irrigation and forestry branches. The Department of Agriculture had 13 branches responsible for various agricultural matters, including soil and water conservation. Soil management was supervised by the irrigation branch, which, like other branches, suffered from acute staff store shortages. There were no formal structures for the promotion of soil um, the conservation and con uh, and concern for soil erosion at the department uh, mental level uh, it, it, it being minimal um, the 1890 to 18 uh, 1930 era was a trial and error period in Seri in 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 soil conservation according to Hudson as written in 1963 our soil management in the entire country was the responsibility of wait for it one irrigation official so W.M. Watt between 1910 and 1920, A.C. Jennings between uh, 1921 and 1924, P.H. Haviland between 1925 and 1929, and uh, in this instant, uh, D. Allen between 1930 and 1942, respectively. So one official. The, so essentially, it's not important. Um, and we're not going to ask the natives. We're not going to ask the locals um, how they were able to manage this vast pieces of land, this vast tract of land, because, hey, what do they know? They're backward, isn't it? The, the, the strong social, the socioeconomic and political links between South Africa and Zimbabwe facilitated the first specific conservation legislation in colonial Zimbabwe. Verbatim copy of South Africa and Forest, as uh, rather South African Forest and Herbage Preservation Act of 1859. They just like, you know, might as well have photocopied it. With provisions for forest and soil protection, the act was amended as as the 1903 and 1913 ordinances to suit local requirements, especially those seeking to prevent indiscriminate bushfires and soil erosion associated with the destruction of our tropical woodland. However, the ordinances passed in 1913 covering water use, soil and woodland preservation were rarely enforced <laughs> and really remained dead letters. So you had these laws that you were creating at that time that you're like, yo, let's have these laws, but we're not going to really do anything about them except, you know, well, when we're dealing with indigenous population. Yeah. So these laws did not touch the farmers. The guys who were doing the large scale farming at that point in time, the guys who had been given large tracts of land, uh, going back to, 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 to what I'd said earlier, the ridiculous amount of land that they were getting, the, the 15 mine claims, uh, as well as um, uh, thousands of hectares of, of what you call it, of land. They were not bound by these by these by these new laws around soil preservation and and avoidance of land degradation and forest protection soil protection they were not bound by that it was just okay we're going to use it against uh well the poor people let's let's use it against the people we who 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 you know I, it, it's it's you can't make it up it's it's, it's all sorts of ridiculous <laughs> 
So uh, when you then move forward from then, uh, Forrester's expressed um, minimal enthusiasm for uh, the impressive forest knowledge of the local people. Not interested. Again, not having, couldn't give it a hot about it. Usually they are regarded as ignorant about forestry and conservation and spoilers of the environment. So those who had been keeping the environment together were now accused of, the, of spoiling the environment. I want you to, 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 get, to, 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 to let that sink. The guys who've been keeping the environment together are called the spoilers of the environment. And then the guys who are destroying the environment, oh, we're the enlightened ones. And so this contentious dismissal of uh, indigenous knowledge and poli uh, policing uh, function of the for forestry uh, personnel as with uh, post-colonial or the donor-funded natural resource management programs fails to build upon or even to acknowledge local practices and knowledge. Not even, we're not even, we're not even, not even announced. Nope. Oh, we can try this. No, uh, don't walk this one. No, not going to do it. Even available archival evidence uh, suggests that the mining sector caused the most havoc in Mazoa woodland and already under severe pressure from farmers and wood contractors. Uh, existing mining legislation worsened the situation. Government poli policy not only uh, permitted but also encouraged miners and uh, prospectors to exploit tree resources free of charge as and when it pleased them. Miners could cut down trees free of any royalty for timber and fuel from African reserves. African reserves. So there was a big thing. Okay, there's a bunch of people that are living. We're just going to go and cut down trees and, and, and uh, you know, mine as we wish. Some of which is, uh, is being accused of nowadays where there have been accusations that foreigners have come in I'm not going to mention this particular country because, well, I, I don't have enough evidence to be able to make that accusation against that specific country. But the foreigners have come in and are engaging the same type of mining. So it's almost repeating history where they're going to go into any quote unquote African reserves. The people are displaced and mining takes place. Um, so the reservation, uh, so as this, the, um, this, this period was an economic boon for miners and even more for the British South Africa company. The law gave miners seeking to invest in African reserves the right to cut timber as part of the exercise of those mining rights. Miners could essentially make a wood camp and cut wherever they pleased. One mine manager revealing state, revealingly stated that timbers and fuel are the lifeblood of the mines. They are essential to the economic working Increasingly mature trees were cut down in large numbers to meet the ever-increasing demand for mining, construction, and fuel timbers in Shamva, Concession, Trojan, and Biduda mining areas. Elsewhere in the country, the native commissioner for Incisa further observed that there is more timber or trees of great value cut down by a single average mine in a month for mine shafts and tunnels than taken by the whole native population in this district for a year. So how was conservation going to happen, people? Tell Larry, how was conservation going to happen? When, it were, when essentially the, the land was being 
completely abused, completely being derogated, completely being uh, treated with or, or any form of disdain that could be found. Uh, now, the, the, the denuding of the land, miles of the country, uh, you know, was so rampant at the time that it, it, it was almost applauded. And the government, of course, um, a, the government policy left farmers with little room for to maneuver. Farmers and conservationists advanced sound arguments against the monopoly of mining capital on woodland. The, the status quo meant that there was no incentive for farmers to preserve and maintain uh, farm woodlots. Uh, the reaction of Mazoe farmers uh, differed over time and space and from one farmer to the next. Many farmers were negligent towards the trees on their land. Some farmers were inclined to destroy trees on their farms to discourage wood contractors and miners. Others protested by barring miners from entering their properties, altogether leading to quarrels. Now, let's look at this. Again, having this conversation around how the the farmers are here very well aware that these actions are, are, are destroying the land. Instead of protecting the land, some of them are chopping the, land, the, the trees down and saying, okay, if, 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 um, if essentially I can't have it, you can't. Um, and of course, because timber was, 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 was something that was highly regarded, they probably will go around and sell the timber themselves. So again, chopping these trees down and no one is talking about how these uh, how this is going to uh, impact the future uh, of course there's no such foresight it's only africa and there's a lot of trees <laughs> in spite of the open criticism of rapacious timber cutting by mining companies and poor farming uh, techniques by settlers colonial perceptions over time stress the notion of impro improvident africans as the prime cause of environmental destruction in particular, deforestation and erosion, two major themes in uh, forest history discourses within the global context. Yes, blame the Africans, not the guys who are actually chopping the trees. Think about that. Not the guys who are mining, chopping trees, getting rid of uh, of tree uh, of uh, of um of huge swathes of land. As the native commissioner of Nyati that I mentioned earlier said, that the denuding that was taking place at the time, uh, a, in such a short period, a mining company could get rid of the land that uh, people within that period, the indigenous population could not do within a year. But the global context and some of it was still exist today is to blame the locals and blame them and say, oh, they're the ones denuding the, 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 the forest. Look at these Africans. Could he, you can see it even in the, in the conversation, conversations in the 1980s and 1990s. That, that conversation persisted even to 2000. Deforestation was blamed on people who were in the rural areas, who were only had the capacity to sometimes only chop one tree per year, but big mining companies who had eroded the land, engaged in massive degradation, given a free pass. 
So with the African context, historical soil forest literature is obligated to show that settler farmers and miners were, were hostile to each other, competing as profligate users of natural resources during the period 1890 to 1930. Although farmers enjoyed much state support in acquiring fertile land and standing uh, and starting export-oriented tobacco, maize, and uh, cotton production, conservative uh, attitudes and ignorance entrapped by a commercial motive uh, undermined progress towards the adoption of sound soil management uh, practices. Indeed, uh, encounters with settlers, miners, and imper imperial scientists are often fractured colonial state power that was uh, confronted by irreconcilable uh, contradictory forces, reflecting differences between the depart departments, uh, interest uh, groups, and individuals within the colony. However, in spite of their diversity and versatilities, indigenous knowledge systems have been neglected in, in most academic and non-academic disciplines to this day. The main reasons for their marginalization by outsiders include the lack of documentation, uh, cultural prejudice, uh, professional pride, uh, problems of language, a political power exercised by outsiders and the gap between practitioner and academic uh, cultures. Now, this, the, these, uh, I'll tell you that in in the putting together of especially this final podcast, this is one of the things that you find was a difficult one to deal with. First of all, the lack of documentation is very, very huge, and this is something I think going forward, a um, couple more episodes are, are going to be needed to to sort of like bring some of this to light the lack of documentation and sometimes when you, when you go even to the national archives you, 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 there's no way of you trying to 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 this is very difficult for you to try and find information because no one is sitting there and say okay that's of environmental concern come and check that out and the other problems is uh, problem professional pride sometimes uh, when you reach out to some you see you want to have a conversation it gets a bit difficult now the, the political power exercised by uh, outsiders is another big one because in the context that we live, I did mention the aspect of, uh, of, of the fact that some of the errors that were made or the aberrations or the gross uh, violence against the uh, earth that were happening between 1890 and 1830 or rather 1930 are happening now. So the land degradation that is taking place in, 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 in while chasing uh, for mining uh, resources is taking place at the moment, and the, the gap between practitioner and and academic cultures. So the cultures within the uh, academia sometimes uh, close doors. Uh, now, while I must say, in the government in recent times has come up with policies such as the national uh, environmental education policies and strategies. Uh, which have some exciting points and could push towards uh, people becoming getting a lot more understanding of uh, environmental protection. But it needs to have a huge component of indigenous knowledge systems because just because we are 200 years away or 130 years away from official occupation by colonization, it does not mean that a lot of what happened Right, in, in as far as indigenous and indigenous knowledge system has fallen away, they still need to 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 preserve a certain aspect 
of the, the flora and fauna of, of our country. And digging into those indigenous knowledge systems, some of which still remain in certain societies, is important so that we can have a cohesive national conservation strategy. That's it. That's it. You need something that's that, that's holistic, that's co that, that's cohesive, and addresses the needs of this specific country. And what is more, indigenous knowledge uh, system based uh, systems, or rather, indigenous knowledge system uh, based uh, conservation strategies, often come in local languages and are easier to communicate across uh, to people, so that they have a better understanding of what actions they could take, small or big as far as uh, conserve, conservation in their society. And that's democratizing climate action. Climate action should happen from local areas. And local areas have a better understanding of what the, the local needs are. And even if some of those solutions are to be important, and they are great, some really great science that is out there, it must be married to what the locals believe in. And that is a fundamental aspect in as far as climate justice is concerned. Because unless those who are most affected are able to take action, then there can be no justice. So that's that. My name is Larry Quirida. I'm, I'm uh, looking to try and have a conversation in another episode with a minister, or rather uh, someone from the Ministry of uh, tourism and and, and, the, and uh, tourism, hospitality, and the environment. Is that what they call it? To but the en environmental protection uh, ministry. I want to have a conversation to see what the policy of the government is, because the government has been speaking recent times about uh, how it wants to 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 engage uh, a lot more in climate action. But I want to know how much of it is being devolved to to locals. How much. Are the locals in their areas, in their regions across the country, being involved in climate action and climate policy? And for that, I say thank you very much. My name is Larry Kwiderai. As uh, This podcast is available on uh, Spotify. It's available on Apple Podcasts, also on um, Google Play, uh, and a whole lot of other podcatchers that you have out there. So, so just go there, subscribe. Uh, the next episode will be out in a couple of weeks. Otherwise, take care of yourself and the people that you, that you love. And I say from where I come from, my name is Larry Quirirai. Asiri, siasebenza. Take care of yourself. The next episode will be out in a couple of weeks. Otherwise, take care of yourself and the people that you, that you love. And I say from where I come from, my name is Larry Quirirai. Asiri, siasebenza. Take care of yourself. This episode of the Greenhouse Podcast would not have been possible without the good folks at African Crossroads.